Today, I will share with you 12 sustainability leadership lessons that I learned from unplugging my fridge for six and a half months. Yes, you heard that right. My fridge was unplugged for six and a half months. I just plugged it in the other day for the first time in six and a half months. Isn't a refrigerator essential? Isn't life with them better? I thought so. So I'm going to quote from my mom. She appeared on this podcast to illustrate where I'm coming from. So this is in her words. I grew up where it was easily 90 degrees every single day. In fact, where I worked, the store, if it got 90 degrees outside, we got to close the store and go home because it was that unsafe. To me, air conditioning was wonderful. And to my mom, this is still my mom speaking, so she's speaking about her mom here. And to my mom and my grandmother, not having to use icebox refrigerators was great. I really appreciate all of that today, and I understand that we've gone overboard with air conditioning. It's really bad for the environment, and one should learn how to get along with these temperatures. But Josh, it was really hot in South Dakota. Unless you had really, really good screens, when you opened the windows, you were covered with mosquito bites. I don't want to revisit that at all, ever. I'm willing to use fans and cut out a lot of air conditioning, but to me, it means giving up a lot that made my life a lot better. Still continuing in my mom's voice here. I didn't have much, but what we had was good. It seems to me like you're asking me, not you personally, but we're saying stop doing these things that brought joy. I'm not excessive. Okay, that was an extended quote from my mom. Back to me. Her experience is no air conditioning bad, air conditioning good. No fridge bad, fridge good. Most of us share that experience and belief. It's our culture. As long as we don't challenge our beliefs and culture, we're stuck polluting. We'll keep sleepwalking into an uninhabitable earth. But people lived without refrigerators for hundreds of thousands of years. Were they all miserable all the time? Other cultures always look odd until we get them. Changing culture from polluting to stewarding. To change American and global culture to embrace stewardship and pollute less. Not thinking it means deprivation, sacrifice, burden, and chore. But joy, fun, freedom, connection, community, meaning, and purpose. A leader leads experience in three areas. The leader needs to have experience leading people, in science, and living the values he or she proposes others adopt. Most people have one or two of these. I know of almost no one with all three. Many scientists, educators, and journalists, they know science, but not how to lead. They spread facts, figures, and instruction, but these things rarely lead people to change. Many leaders don't know science, So they promote ideas that sound nice, but don't work. Even among people who lead and know science, that's a rare combination. Few to none have tried to live sustainably. Sadly and unintentionally, they present solutions as abstract at best, but more often as something even they don't want, but we have to. I've been to the mountaintop and seen the promised land. I don't avoid packaged food and flying to deprive myself, nor because I believe my contributions divided by 7.8 billion round off to anything other than zero. I do it on a personal level to live by my values and not pollute others' worlds. But from a sustainability leadership perspective, I learn what living sustainably means. I learn what the transition requires. Changing a lifestyle isn't a matter of new technology or instruction. It takes new role models, beliefs, stories, images, support, community, and things like that. The challenge of building muscle at the gym isn't knowing what weights to lift. It's how to go when you don't feel like it, or your friends discourage you, handling injuries or slow progress, diet, sleep, coaching, things like that. In Martin Luther King speak, to reach the promised land, you have to climb the mountain, which few people want to do first. They don't see the value. Someone has to go first and show it can be done. A few will follow, then it becomes mainstream. Why I unplugged my fridge. 
I recorded a podcast episode that goes into more depth, but the biggest reason is that renewable power sources are intermittent. Providing uptime on an electrical grid costs a lot of money, it reduces energy security, and requires peaker plants and nuclear. These things are very, very polluting. We started browning out power grids in the summer of the 40s. We've since built our power grids up much more, and we still see brownouts. We keep making ourselves dependent. Every time we build capacity, we use it all up. What if instead of using more, we made ourselves more resilient? What if, like the rest of the world, we could handle power going down? We'd save money, increase energy security, and could get by with only renewables. And this is according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. This is a .gov site. Their Renewable Electricity Future Study, which showed that we could provide for 80% of the power in the United States at all times just from renewables. That's if we kept going up in power use. But if we drop by 20%, then that 80% is everything we need. Imagine living on only solar and wind by spending less money. But a major hurdle is refrigerators. Can we live in the modern world without them, or at least for some time? Can we handle them being unpredictable? Before I unplugged mine for the first time, I doubted I could make it a day or two. I made it three months. The next year, which is to say last November, I tried it again. I made it over six and a half months. What I learned living without a fridge for six and a half months. One, face the problem, then solve it. Don't try to solve it in the abstract. It's easier to figure out how to preserve food when your food is about to go bad than trying to imagine all the different possibilities beforehand, hypothetically. Two, we connect with other cuisines more by living in our own culture than by visiting others. February and March in New York mean parsnips, beets, potatoes, and mostly root vegetables, plus whatever greens I fermented or sprouted. What sounds subtractive, that is cutting things out, actually makes the process constructive and creative. How do I make what I have taste good? This restriction in my life connects me more with other cultures whose cuisines emerged from that constraint there. Visiting briefly for a weekend or even a few months feels more like treating them like a zoo. Three, less tech means more connection. Less technology forces me to learn to do from less technology forces me to learn what to do from family, friends, and people with similar goals, like authors and people who make videos. This exercise connects me with people. It revealed that technology generally, and with many exceptions, separates us more than connects us. Since our environmental problems result not from just natural occurrences, but our behavior, and our behavior results from our emotions, our culture, our environmental problems are a social and emotional issue, and rarely does technology solve social and emotional problems. If we rely on technology to solve social and emotional problems, we probably won't solve them. Four, fermentation and sprouting are easy and fun. Before this experience, fermentation sounded scary, dangerous, and hard. I didn't think about sprouting at all. Now I see fermentation as how civilization began, and it's quick and easy, producing rich and complex flavors. I can do it simply now, basically chopping vegetables, adding salt, mixing them, and putting them in a jar. I started with sauerkraut and vinegar, and moved to chutneys, kvass, and fermenting random vegetables and fruit to keep them edible. Meanwhile, bean sprouts took less time, less effort, and something like pennies a pound. I didn't know it was so easy. Five, it was about resilience more than power. Few things are more repellent than neediness and entitlement. Do you know anyone you like more for their neediness? And if we need power, that's needy. Weren't our technologies supposed to make us more capable? It seems like they're making us more dependent, more needy. Six, whole fruits and vegetables last longer than I expected. Before this exercise, I thought packaging extended the lives of things. But fruits and vegetables, especially root vegetables, stay fresh a long time. 
Cabbage, beets, potatoes, and winter vegetables can stay fresh for weeks to months without special treatment, longer with fermentation. Seven, solving a challenge to live by value makes me want to solve more, like going off-grid. Since I started by thinking this challenge was beyond my abilities, I considered it a goal and a stretch at that. I expected every month or week from when the weather started warming up to be as far as I could go. Then March led to April, when I started expanding my skills to ferment and keep things fresh otherwise, which led to May, which led to June. My monthly electric charges on my bill of $1.70, $1.70, and $1.40 for the first months of this year got me wondering how low I could go. Could I go off the electric grid for months at a time? I don't yet know, but the question prompted me to start researching and experimenting with living on solar and disconnecting from Con Ed for months next time. Stay tuned. Eight, we're freaking spoiled and entitled. American culture and those of most peer countries make us dependent, spoiled, and entitled, insensitive and dismissive of people that we know that we're hurting. Most spoiled and entitled people don't know they are. They prefer people not saying no to them. But I think we all know they'd prefer not to be spoiled if they could transition. We are spoiled. We don't want anyone denying us ice cream and tomatoes any months of the year, but expand our horizons and we'll stop being so provincial. The New York Times posted an article, there's a link to in the text, the title is, When One Fridge Is Not Enough. And that article started off, quote, For many Americans, a second fridge, and sometimes a third, is another member of the family, end quote, with pictures of giant refrigerators filled with expensive, unhealthy, needless doof. Member of the family, a refrigerator? Member of the family, a refrigerator? What happened to us? Nine, everyone wants to protect elderly and helpless, not thinking through that we can adjust for them. Common first reactions to hearing what I'm doing begin with, you can do it because you're privileged, though not with questions to learn if I am or not. Something about me, it seems, leads people to conclude not only that I must be privileged, but out of touch with the lives of people around me. Yes, there are ranges of needs of refrigerators, and maybe some people can't go without, but that doesn't mean not for you to try yourself if you're not one of those people. And most of society can become more resilient, adjusting that some people, if we have to adjust for them, we can adjust for them, but we can still make most of society more resilient. People get hung up on these edge cases and then they stop thinking or considering that it's possible for the remaining 99% or however many other people we can make things more resilient for. 10. Freedom is the opposite of neediness. The more I needed a fridge, the less freedom I had. I don't mean political freedom. I mean mental, emotional, and physical freedom. A fridge creates dependence. The lack of needing one opens the world to where and what I can eat. The problem with dependence on foreign oil isn't foreign, but dependence. Everyone talks about our dependence on foreign oil as if needing it from another country makes America unstable. On the contrary, dependence is the problem. Not that it's foreign. If it's domestic, but we're still dependent, that's the problem. When we're needy, people can control us. 12. Sustainability isn't a goal or a target, but skills that once you start, you find more. Speaking of commitments to pollute less, I picked up the following pattern from my podcast guests and felt it here too. Guests who had already acted in stewardship the most tended to come up fastest with the most meaningful commitments to live by with their emotional values. On the other hand, people who hadn't done much, they tended to give up or push back on finding things to do. They'd say they already drove an electric car or avoided bottled water and then ask rhetorically what more they could do and declare themselves or at least imply they're one of the good guys and then stop thinking about it or doing anything more. On my podcast, I find that the people who do the most find more to do. People who do the least feel like they're doing all they can. As for finding things to do, future generations will recoil in horror at our choosing comfort and convenience, contributing to something like 10,000 years of 
Earth's degradation, it's lowering its ability to sustain life, which means human suffering. The solution is rarely more technology. That's tactically, yes, more tech can help, but not as a strategy. A more effective strategy is generally going to be less technology, which creates more connection to each other and to nature. Think of how you learn to raise a child. You can learn all you want about birth and raising a child, but giving birth is where your learning begins. The first couple seconds of a baby's life, you learn more than all the learning beforehand. If we want to lower our emissions, building wind and solar is nice, but shutting down using fossil fuels will teach us what to do much more and much faster. Of course, I have a plan to address the frail and the helpless in that transition period, but we'll transition a lot faster if we decrease the amount of fossil fuels available and then figure out what to do. That's the biggest thing that I learned from this experience. First face the problem, then solve it. Don't try to solve all possibilities ahead of time. You never will get started. I learned the same lesson years ago when I first challenged myself to go for a week without packaged food. I learned the same lesson when I challenged myself to go without flying. I learned the same lesson when I changed lots of different things. You have to face the problem. When you do, the solutions become obvious. When you don't, they're hypothetical. We don't get anywhere. We don't get started. This isn't just me. This works with corporate leaders, people I work with on the podcast, everyone. In the case of weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels, give birth to the baby. Face the problem. Let entrepreneurs innovate the actual problem, not some hypothetical, the actual problem. Markets will form around these solutions. Create new markets. Use different metrics than GDP. Baker's dozen. Here's a 13th, lesson 13. Turning on the fridge felt gross. The day that I wrote this, it hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 32 Celsius. And yesterday began my summer CSA, meaning many leafy greens that would get wilty in the heat. At last, I plugged the fridge back in. I unplugged it in November 22 expecting to last to March, maybe, and made it to June instead. Next time, I'll start earlier and get a month or two extra.